How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 226. Got a jam-packed episode. For, Jam- the, for the fans of the show, Zeke. Whew. I know. That's spicy. Very spicy. That's spicy. I'm glad you've got a jam-packed show, because coming into this, I've only watched the film of the week. Oh, Spoiler alert. We like it. But that's okay, <laughs> because I also have trivia from the film of the week, Jake. Oh, excellent. That'll get us. That'll get us there. Mm. In the second half of the show. I find this interesting, and we'll talk about it in the second half of the show, but the last mm. two minutes of the film were pure improvisation. The actors oh. have played the whole finals, um, have played the whole final scene where Igna Bergman saw in the sky a cloud of unusual shape. He told the troupe again wear costumes and directed a new version of the final scene in one take, which is mm. quite interesting. It is, yeah, and, and I like the reading because it doesn't spoil it. For those who haven't seen the film, but you, you're, you're listening to the podcast, you should, you know, get onto it, watch it. It's free mm-hmm. on YouTube, very easy to find. Yes. Um, but yeah, I did find that very interesting because it seems like such a calculated ending. Yes. Um, especially for some of the the literal intertextual foreshadowing to that scene earlier in the film, which we'll get to as well. So yeah, that is really interesting. Speaking of intertextuality, Zeke, almost all of the iconography of this film from Bergman is based on church murals uh, which his father used to attend and, and preach. Mm. Um, and in particular, the iconic image of the knight playing the chess with death, um, which has been parodied in, in, in so many things. I think I was telling you last week about, um, or reminding you rather, the 500 Days of Summer. Yes. Uh, very very much a clear ode to it, where um, Joseph Gordelever's character is watching the movie. He's in it. I think he plays the knight in it, I'm guessing. He wouldn't play death. That doesn't make any sense. No. But even that image... Uh, it's based on a painting from the 1480s by Alpeter's Pictor, who is actually a featured character in the film. He's the one doing the paintings very early on as well. There He's you in the go. Credits. So I thought that was very interesting. Very interesting link right there, especially to the ending, because that may be another painting that's in that scene. It's all tied yes. together, Zeke. It's all intricately tied. sexuality there. Jake, mm. I'm going to take a cheeky guess cheeky and say guess. this is definitely on the film poster behind me. It is not. What? I was baffled, Zeke, that this film is not on the 1100 films you must watch before you die poster. This feels, I mean, Bergman as a director, and this almost feels like the go-to introduction to his work, period. But it's like, it's in the top 100 films on Letterboxd, or narrative films of all time. Um, the the iconography of it is is so iconic, you know, it's so well-known and parodied mm. everywhere. I was shocked that it's not on the poster. So, so, you know what, Zeke? Sometimes it happens. It does happen. Sometimes it happens. Well, Jake, you did allude that it was a jam-packed episode. What have you watched in the last week? So, I watched quite a lot. I actually rewatched Horrible Bosses, which I thought was quite funny. It's, um, it's, it's like the, the most safe yeah. comedy you can do. It's like such the... an interesting cast when you think mm. about it. You know, that's early movie Charlie Day. Obviously, yes, you know. he just directed the film. He did. Yeah. Yeah, which looks kind of funny. I haven't I haven't seen anything. I just kind of saw, like, the cast list and, like, the poster, so I kind of got an idea of the um, the vibe of it, I guess. Yeah, it looks but a I, bit different. I've heard mixed things. Mm. Some people didn't find it very funny, but others others found it very funny, as all I, films, I guess. Charlie Day is kind of an interesting <laughs> one. It's, it's like the Always Sunny in Philadelphia show, mm. I think, because I had been told years by, like, Oliver, who's both a mutual friend of ours, to yeah. watch Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And the first season's so jarring and against what your conventional American comedy is like. Right. It's not even like an American comedy trying to be a British comedy. It's honestly just despicable people in extraordinary situations. Right. Which community does to an extent, but does the par- it, it, it's under the guise of parody or... Or homage, and also still has that emotional aspect. Whereas Always Sunny, now having its like I think it's seventeenth season or something like that. It's crazy how long it's been going on. And they've got the podcast as well. Yeah, well, the so podcast is actually elevates. I love listening to the podcast and then watching the episode, like having that intertwined. But it is truly interesting because it's a show that it really feels like four people just made it their own. Yeah, and. Uh, they had a conversation on one of the podcasts I just listened to about how the fact that Charlie Day, when he was getting into those early movies, he would right. be like, he'd come back to the show and everyone thought he would go off and just become sort of a movie star and not right. do the show anymore when they're in about season com- six. He committed to it. Or seven, still. he said, 
no, I want to keep this. This show is more important to me because mm. this is ours. We can control everything on this show. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a little bit like the um, Michael Scott office situation there with Steve Carell became huge like after the first or second season. Yeah. But then they, they kept him for several more seasons, which obviously helped the show yeah. a lot. And and also another particular actor, um, maybe maybe the name Fox is in it, which I'm going to be talking about later in other films I watch. That was a horrible little sneak peek mm. um, coming up. But yeah, between him and, and Jason Sudeikis, who's obviously Ted Lasso now, so it's weird to see him in a, a slightly more crude role. Mm. Uh, obviously, I mean, I haven't seen Ted Lasso, but I know it's a bit more like... Um, uplifting is yeah. that a correct word to use yeah it is yeah, it's kind of like I'm a nice guy in that and then of course Jason Bateman pre-Ozark angry straight man role against Kevin Spacey <laughs> see watching the film now it's like it's so much more fun to hate him in such a despicable role in that film but yeah like I said it's it's it still holds up in, in the sense that like some of the things they say is funny some of the things they do is funny the premise itself is mm. funny but it's absurd like, ah, oh, ha, ha, the sexual harassment is funny because it's happening to the man. It's, there's a little bit of that going on. Yeah. But, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, Obviously up to date with Succession. And I just wanted to shout it out because much like, say, the third episode of this season, um, you haven't watched it yet. This is nope. the, the Election Day episode, America Speaks, or America... Uh, I, I think it is America Speaks. I can't remember mm. the name of the episode. Connor for President. Connor for President, exactly. <laughs> I love what they do with Connor in this episode, but I I just had to give it a bit of a shout out with no spoilers, of course. But like, what I love about this episode in particular is compared to the pilot of Succession. I remember talking about the pilot in isolation a couple of years ago when I first mm. watched it, and how I loved that it portrayed these characters who obviously in, in charge of this big media conglomerate, and it, it's sort of showing you like here are these awful, narcissistic, ignorant people, and like the influence they have on like, the everyday American citizen yeah. and, like, the nation at large. And it has that little twist at the end of the first episode that just, like, the family that he, he says to the kid, I'll give you a million dollars for the home run, and they're sitting in front of a TV in their small apartment and the $1.2 million average housing. I can't remember exact words, but basically it has that little thread at the very end of the pilot that reminds you, like, here's the effect that these people are having. Yes. And I think the show does kind of lose that perspective as it goes on, especially by season three and four. It's so plot heavy. It's so about the family and the business strategies they have to come up with to keep it alive or do what they mm-hmm. you know, to what's in their best interest. And yeah. I, and I, what I love about the election episode is it it kind of brings it back to that from a semicircle arc where characters are, are making strategic actions based on personal flaws and emotional flaws. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's characters with addiction, drug issues, grief and trauma and all these things that are actually influencing these big company moves yeah. that this episode reminds you in the full circle moment that also has a huge effect on the on the nation and the everyday people. So I wanted to give a shout out to Accession for like bringing that back in right at the tail end of the show's mm. uh, run. So um, I'm so excited for you to see it. It's so good and it, it's getting real, man getting so real there we go uh, but this ties into another show i was watching barry i talked about the first season last week i've binged it all so i've been through seasons two three and everything up until today's episode uh in through season four so there's only two episodes left in the whole show so i've caught up just in time to sort of get a peek at the see off both end. of them exactly on the exact same day it's interesting hbo day <laughs> we're gonna call it now um yeah i think barry's great I loved how season two sort of shows him, you know, doing the 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 kind of arc that we're so used to with antiheroes mm. is like a guy trying to escape his past, but it authentically is one of the best versions of that arc, and the way that he has to portray his violent past on stage as as part of his um uh as part of the teachings I should say Gene's teachings, uh the fact that it it interweaves with the haunting visions of his time uh in the war and how his buddy's Egamon for, you know, being a really good murderer, and, like, just, like, all the way it interweaves all those ideas I thought was so clever, and then how season three takes it to the other extent where he accepts that it's almost an impossibility to escape this life, and at that point, how do you channel this anger and this violent uh, tendencies that you have, which all goes back to just this, the general idea of toxic masculinity, especially in the Me Too age, and much like BoJack, this show was able to capitalize on that as this was all happening in real life. Mm-hmm which I think was really interesting. And they also fit in their like meta 
TV production in an algorithm age uh, commentary as one of the main characters produces her own TV show. So they're able to get their own little jabs and interpersonal stories into into the overall story arc. Um, so I thought that was all really interesting. It is getting very plot heavy in the last season because now it's like they just need to kind of focus on wrapping up the story and the characters. Yeah. Um, and I think I think it's interesting where they're going. I don't think every arc of it is like masterful. For example, the filmmaking is fantastic. There's some great action stuff. Bill Hader he's directing every episode of season four. He's just like glued himself to that director's mm-hmm. chair, and he's he's fantastic. Like he's great performance, but he's directing and writing, especially. The fifth episode of season two, that's kind of like their Bojack Underwater, Better Call Soul bag, man. Like that that one episode of the show that really just stands out from everything else, that takes a seat, a step back and like <laughs> recontextualizes the show and its genre and its characters. And um, So there's a lot to really love with Barry. So I'm really enjoying it. I'll talk about it again once the finale releases, along with the succession finale. Um, but that's my recommendation. If you're able to binge like what 12 hours of <laughs> television in the next week then i recommend you do it spend that time on barry and catch there up before the show ends um i watched one other film i you said you haven't seen no been a quiet else. week unfortunately no, that's fair enough well I'll, I'll talk about what i alluded to before you mentioned like charlie day staying on the show didn't want to let the the movie stardom of it all kind of seek in and take him away the same kind of happens with michael j fox now New documentary on Apple TV Plus is called Steel, which is uh, non-linear, very uh, surprisingly experimental documentary on Michael J. Fox and, of course, his uh, Parkinson's disease. And what I really loved about this, uh, you know, there's you have your typical scenes in there where he's doing his physical therapy. There's one where his wife, Tracy Poland, is helping him, like, write a text. Mm-hmm. And that's something you don't even think about. It's like, it would be impossible to text your friends when you have parkinson's yeah so like, you can litter the film with those kinds of scenes and that will like fill in your 90 minutes of like you know sad but feel good yeah you know i i can trump this disease sort of storyline and i'm glad they kind of go way further than that and they present the story not as like this tragedy you know uh, 80s movie star falls down to you know parkinson's victim yeah. it's very much like a non-linear exploration of how the two sides of his life uh, complement each other so to speak and you have those moments where he's talking about his career and like working on family ties but then at night working on back to the future and how he got like one hour sleep a night for three months while working on those two projects simultaneously but this isn't a biopic about like oh here's a fun tidbit about Kristen glover on the set of back to the future it very much takes that moment of his life and turns it into this like nauseating, complicated montage, uh, full with like these really expressively lit reenactments. They actually hired someone. I want to grab his name, Danny uh, Izari, who actually plays the young Michael J. Fox. He looks uncanny, which is amazing. And they just they basically make a, f- a mini film, like a super stylized, beautifully lit film within the documentary, to to not be like, oh, this is what it was like working on Back to the Future. It's like this was a nightmare. <laughs> And it's just trying to like Does he like walk that. into the set and talk about stuff? Um, I so to use for an example, like the Back to the Future thing, it's very stylized. It's like the back of him, he's like putting on the jumper. Everyone's giving him all the props and things, the skateboard and the the life preserver jumper and that kind of mm. stuff. Um, the music is swelling. The da 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 da. Like it's all very um in your face about like how epic and like iconic this all is, but he doesn't sit down and like, oh, this was like what it was like to work in the film. There's none of that. It's all about sort of taking those elements and just giving you a general sense of that, that feeling of just Mm. how example, how tired he was (laughs) during the making of this film. So I really appreciate it for being that experimental. You're probably going to have to read like an autobiography if you want like very specific stories on set. Um, I appreciated that this kind of went in the other direction and didn't do that. Um, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really good. Still, Michael J. Fox film. Excellent. Do you have anything to add in career updates before we move into the film of the week, Jake? Um, I met with a sound designer last week, <laughs> a Skin and Blister. So we're we're right on the cusp of uh, all the fun little post picture lock stuff. Can you believe it? I know it's crazy. It's zoomed by. <laughs> it feels like it has, hasn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're only in May. And That's true. We shot in. January. January and, and then March. 
which was the, that was meant to be pickups and it ended up being like a whole second weekend of yeah, it was not pickups <laughs> it was a lot we got 21 shots on that second Out weekend of what the, nearly 60 yeah i think the film off the top of my head it's like 66 maybe 68 shots for the film which is not a lot of shots for a 16 minute film no that's actually very conservative number of shots but i can tell you those those shots are damn good shots and we use them to great effect there you go. Um, but to your point, that that second weekend was very much a full. <laughs> oh yeah, it was not a, a a microscopic version of the shoot. It was a it was the double album Zeke <laughs> of shooting. So, well, um, yeah, since March, you're right. It's kind of all sped along quite quickly. So, well, who knows where we'll be in a couple of two months from now? Yeah, you know, fingers crossed, it's all ready to go. There you go. Well, then I guess it's time for us to move into our 1950s installment through the mm. countdown through the decades. Number four, um, Jake, two films go up, one comes out. What are we watching? Yeah, so this film, what was it? Sunset Boulevard, it was up against, which is now the only film in the Countdown for the Decades history to lose twice <laughs> across the poles. This week on the show, Zeke, we're watching The Seventh Seal. <laughs> hemsökte Europa vid mitten av 1300-talet. Den härjar också i Sverige när riddaren Antonius Block är på hemväg från ett korståg. En gång drog han ut till det heliga landet som en trosvis ung krigare. Nu återvänder han, plågad av tvivel och ovisshet. Skulle det inte finnas någon gud? Den tanken är honom outhärdlig. När döden plötsligt står framför honom Vill han ha uppskor och lockar döden till ett parti schack. Till innan han dör vill han ha gjort en enda meningsfull handling. Det får han tillfälle till när slumpen för i hans väg en liten gycklarfamilj som mitt i en värld av lidande och ondska bevarat sin ljusa förtröstan, sin glädje över att leva. Och när schackpartiet lider mot sitt slut slår han omkull pjäserna för att vinna tid. Och för att den lilla familjen ska hinna rädda sig undan döden. Medieval Knight challenged death to a chess game to save himself and his friends. See, if this were me, Zeke, I'd be really bad. Because I haven't played chess since I was like 10 years old. I'm pretty okay at chess. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean I know how to play. I um okay, I'll admit good. I schooled Lucinda the other day when we played it in the bar. She <laughs> won't ever listen that to it. That seems this. like a, a drastic um coincidence. Yeah. That you just been happening to play chess in the last week. <laughs> I wasn't in the last it was about two, three weeks ago. Okay, but that's still pretty good. Um yeah. I was like, Do you want to play chess? Because she just to be fair, she beat me easily at guess who. So, oh, okay. So you wanted to. So we were at a. We were, it was a bunch of board games, and I was like, let's play chess. Yeah. And yeah, that might be <laughs> so bad, the most one sided game of chess <laughs> I've played. I played um I played Uno against Kirsty recently, which I was like, I think I think she kind of like forgot some of the rules, so I kind of eased yeah. in. And then by the end of it, I was just like furiously trying to win and just continued to lose to her. So it kind of. Uno's a little more luck-based, though. Yes. Can we just put that on the table, everyone? I just we, want everyone we, to know. Yeah. It's a bit more luck-based than church. Welcome to, church. This, uh, to yes. the board game podcast. Yes, I know. We're t- talking about board games. Yeah, that's what we took away from the Seventh Seal. That'd be a really cool... You know Bergman what? That film. would be a cool video <laughs> audio podcast where, like, you just pick a new board game every episode and play it. Okay, yeah. And then it's almost like an advertisement for the board game. Yeah. I can see that more as it's like a general... Actually, I think I did think about that years ago, doing like a video, like a board game video series. You know what I mean? And like yeah. you would just, you pick a new one every time and you play it and you'd have a mic there and you'll be like, oh, da 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 da. Like code names and corridor and yeah. all sorts of things. Yeah. yeah, you'd have to have the video component. That would have to be yeah, crucial. Yeah. Well, that, that's why I think it'd have to be a video series. I feel like that's almost essential. Yeah. Especially if, you know, you want to get in there with like the facial expressions of people and like... 
you know, oh my god like who who in code names who does does this person know how those two words connect together and i reckon steven's probably reeling in this Steve, right steven <laughs> is at home like talk about the damn film guys all right <laughs> tangents aside <laughs> which is to pro- be fair to be fair we're, we're watching this film yeah you know about all these like high concept themes hmm. like death and I, th- I think duality, which I'll get into a bit, and why I think that. Um, obviously, life and yeah. um, love and lust and all these all these concepts. And then every now and then, like, oh, I'm just gonna sit down and play chess with this dude. Yeah, it's very it's very invasive. Zik, but for the but movie, I'm trying. Who to did watch. it better, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone or <laughs> Seven Seals? <laughs> did Christopher Columbus beat? Them? I want to see Chris Columbus. Yeah, do a little reference. To the seventh seal and at the end of Philosopher's it, Stone. It is interesting because there's that whole thing when Ron sacrifices himself and he's a brave knight and all that. There's, yeah, exactly. there's stuff there, you know? Yeah, um, yeah uh, so you're 100% right. There are a lot of high concept ideas. There's a lot of biblical imagery and mm, yes. and an interesting, you know, and so, you know, we've talked a bit about, you know, um, Benicio de Toro's sort of Pinocchio and sort of the Christian oh, imagery yeah. and that. And that's a big aspect of that. Obviously, sure. there's more supernatural elements there. Um, this definitely obviously has that post-war, um, you know, we have, a, we meet this character, he's a knight, you know, um, I guess it's an Antonius Block, Block. Yes. I remember when I heard that for the first time. Weird was a Swedish name. Yeah, Block. Antonius Block. Um, <laughs> who, you know, I definitely think at the, the start of the film is trying to show that he's almost empty, he has no life or fulfillment, mm. and, um, that's why death comes to him, um. It's interesting that logline's very deceiving because it makes it out like he has a massive group of friends and he's almost competing in this game of chess to spare their lives. Right. Whereas... Because you're right, cause it doesn't really start out that way. No. But he almost kind of inadvertently puts his new friends in danger as the game goes on. Yeah. Because he finds a, a, a like a lust for life, you yeah. know. Um, a driving meaning... Because, you know, at that point, he's only got his squire, and his squire is an incredibly cynical mm. um, sort of man who is having nothing, kind of has lost faith in the Lord. I, I think these are two soldiers, I mean, obviously knight and squire, who have come back from the Crusades and mm. got no religious fulfillment, no fulfillment in their lives, and were only left to be taken away from either their loved ones or have to commit atrocities. And it's interesting, isn't it? It's almost like yeah. a post war depression they're having in a, in a sense and i think it's interesting that that bergman picked this time period to explore this. and like you said it probably goes back to a lot of the murals that he's trying mm-hmm. to sort of represent visually but i was reading that it, there's a lot of aspects to the story that actually um and I, I imagine bergman doesn't care all that much that don't actually match up with the time period and i was reading things like the you know the widespread witch prosecutions that this is like a century too early for that to play a big part of the story, the uh, flagellant movement, uh, where they come in with the cross during the the, mm. the song that they're singing, we'll talk about that soon, is actually a very foreign concept to Sweden in particular. Um, but I think the idea is like, yeah, he wants to include all these ideas, but this time period, the you know the Black Plague in particular, is, you know all of these people around him that are just dying, uh, just endless death he is surrounded by, and I think that that depression that you're talking about, I think that's key to the time period and, mm. and what he's exploring. Because at the end of the day, this fi- this film feels ancient. But made in 1957, so in terms of it being, a, you know, people watching this in cinemas in 1957, it is still, like, a huge period piece that feels, like, eons earlier. Yeah, so there's still that effect even for audiences watching it at the time that it, that it came out. And, I mean, it was a, you know, the Black Plague was horrible time surrounded by death and i think like you said that kind of goes in with these themes of the silence of god where you know god doesn't speak he's not there his presence is not being felt no and you're just surrounded by all this misery but what is there is this personification of death this tangible figure that speaks and talks and is like surprisingly witty in his conversation that's inevitable yeah so i i think that's where a lot of that depression comes from is seeing all this death coming back home to all this death, obviously being removed from his wife. Um, and the only sort of outer uh, energy that I guess he can feel, for lack of a better word, yeah, is the personification of death. 
Mm. And he knows that the stakes of losing this chess game is deaf, and eventually the deaf know only him and his friends. So it's pretty sour. <laughs> yeah. In all sorts of ways. It is an incredibly, like, yeah, like I said, that's uh, it's a cynical film. And, mm. and, and we've got to think of time and place. Like you said, 1957, so we're, we're in a post-war uh, Europe that have now mm. endured two world wars. Um, you've got right in the middle of that Korea War, the the birth of your Cold War going, yeah. this, you know, not too far away from that Vietnam War. So, mm. you know, the 50s for the most part were a time of relief. It was the time of the nuclear family and stuff. And I know this is a Swedish film. Yeah. So obviously we're, we're imposing Western values on this, this sort of commentary I'm providing. And, but still at its core, you know, being a Swedish filmmaker and obviously, you know, being a young man in World War Two, I mean, Bergman at this time is in his, well, in World War Two was in his twenties. Right. And then at time of making this, he's in his thirties. Mm. So, there's definitely a weight, you know, that I would be very surprised to find out that Bergman didn't, Bergman didn't serve in the Swedish military at the right. time of World War Two, um, and there probably is that that cynicalness when they get to the end of that, you know, the biggest modern war of all time, and a lot of us were left with with nothing. Europe mm. was in shambles at this point. And we've seen other films like The Third Man sort of look at this in a yeah. obviously in a more contemporary lens at the time. Whereas he's taken another, you know, he's taken, like you said, Nature's Wrath. He's put the biblical aspect to it because the plague was not a, a force of, of good or evil. It mm. was just an, a, a worldwide pandemic. Yeah. And, and speaking to the universality of what you're talking about, where you said that there's audiences in the 50s watching this relating into the experiences they just had over the last couple of decades and we can watch this and almost compare it to the experience we had with COVID just a few years ago yeah. it's a weird universality to this film yeah where it's this this point where you start to turn to these religious outlets and I mean if we look at you know because in America we're like mono focused on what happens in America mm. um, and the world revolves around Mer- America Unless you're uh, trying to buy an American company, you know, um, and then it's they don't care. But um, and isn't isn't Madsen Swedish? Um, yes, those, he is. There we go. Bleed the Swede. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's a bit of succession humor, but um, yeah, it is interesting because you know at those times we look at how many of those big you know supporters of. People like Trump, they were these mm. massive religious followings that are still pleading for answers. And then now we have these people, the the increase of cynicism and loss of faith is at all-time highs. You know, people mm. can say, oh, they fall on the back foot of, of science. They believe in science, and that's fine, being an atheist, and that's fine. But then that still brings back the, universal, that, the mm. universality of death. Yeah, Death is inevitable. Death yes, is encroaching. Exactly. Death is forever watching and looming over the fact that at times it seemingly intervenes out of forces of nature, like what happens to, is it, is it Kratz? I'm trying to remember it. Scat. Scat. Oh yeah. Who dies Who, by tree. Well, yeah. <laughs> the soaring of a tree, you know? And, um, that was a great witticism. I just got to give a shout out to Def, my boy Def. When it, when he replied, he's like, Oh, like, He's basically saying, like, well, you've just orchestrated this fake death, so I'm going to achieve it for real. And, of course, this comes off the scene where he's playing chess um, with Antonius, and he basically makes a comment, like, oh, those are your friends over there, huh? He's like, oh, well, I wonder what's going to happen now. Um, but then, of course, his response is, oh, well, I've, I've got a performance. I've got a show. And he's like, oh, well, it's cancelled. Somebody died. <laughs> proceeds to kill him. I'm like, well, he was incredibly witty. A and very then, witty, I, I, very I guess witty that's the man. comical, dumb ways to die sort yeah. of. Um, <laughs> that's sort of playing as it happens. But it's it's really interesting because, like you said, he has that moment when he notices the friends. But it's also, yep. you know, these characters are constantly looking for that religious um, affirmation, that mm. that consolation from God, trying to give them a sense of of purpose. Yep. But you know we could easily take that scene where death actually kills scat yeah um as that sort of atonement for the fact that mm. he was having it off with the blacksmith's wife yeah yeah and um, i and i think like being surrounded by death we're seeing the effect on all these characters that are all sort of overly flirtatious and sort of cheating on each other and um 
and even like Yof, I believe it's the pronunciation there, yeah. or Yof, Yof, uh, Yof. That's it. Thank you. Um, who's like saves the? Um, I'm forgetting the. I guess like the not the mistress, but the. Um, I forget her name, but basically saves her. She's mute at this point, and then immediately goes into like, "Oh, I'm gonna like have my way with you," and then makes a comment about. Oh well, you know, I'm kind of it. It it's sort of dry in the long run, so I'm not going to do that. Oh, but I'm still going to like make you my servant. You know how to cook, right? So I was like, there are these characters who were sort of watching, not necessarily in heroic standpoint. Mm. I mean, we meet this character, seeing that you know the Virgin Mary and and baby Jesus Christ, mm. and in a vision, and is so like awestruck so by that's it. that's yep. Yoff and me, Mia, Yoff. the true oh. performers, and then John or Jean. I think it's um. I think it's Jon's. Is the the squire that you're talking about gotcha, that saves gotcha. the um, mute girl, but then basically takes ownership of her? Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I only watched this like what two hours ago. It's a bunch of Swedish yes. names, so it's very hard to. Well, stir. I I just knew it. I knew I needed to give myself more time to digest the story and the characters, and he was going to get something mixed up. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. I get what you're saying. So you know, Yoff yes. is that like you said that character that has these visions. Um, yes. He almost has that. Yeah, that Tommy Lee Jones in <laughs> in No Country for Old Men. This weird sort of uh, existential. Yes. And I mean, to be fair, Yoff actually literally sees yeah. these things yeah exactly. and it's proven and it pays the, off at the end as and the well, end and that he actually does see it or at least in his subjective discourse and us as the viewer we seeing what yeah. you're seeing so and i love the other detail while we're mentioning that i love that he's he's like mentioning the clothes like he talks i think was it a red dress that he talks about you know the virgin mary having and i love that discourse there where we're as an audience we're watching a black and white movie mm. so it's like almost the beauty that he's describing is like beyond our conception yeah. as we're watching a world that is orchestrated in black and white and I, I I think the reason it's in black and white I don't know if it's an artistic choice uh, I know it was a very cheap film to be made 50 grand yeah and what shot over 35 days so I'm, I'm guessing that is the cause for it being a black and white film but from, from a creative and artistic standpoint that could also be intentional like the constant description of colours and the same goes for the devil description later on, like the devil's red paint. So it's I like these color descriptions as something that is sort of beyond our conception as the audience watching a black and white world. Um, and I'm guessing these church morals, a lot of them were in color, I mm. imagine. So I think that, that might also be another sort of recreation there. Can we so just acknowledge a, a very young-looking Max von Sindau? Like, mm. how young does he look? He's quite but he a still sexy looks man. He still looks skeletal, you know. Yeah, he's, there's that kind of even though he's very young, there's almost like a sense of wisdom like the, the his posture and like you said, he's very clearly depressed for a lot of this film. So I think that almost like carries that it almost makes up for the lack of age yeah. in that character, which I think is interesting. But I, I like this idea of like you saying that you know, in one way they're positioning us that um Death is actually coming for Antonius, but then mm. sort of when he notices the friends, it's almost like he's sort of taking in the fact that all of them aren't quite being, uh, in the biblical sense, faithful to yeah. God's word and God's um, advice, and mm. they too will fear the wrath of death at some points. And that's, you know, you're 100% right, because like I said, you've got, um, like I said, Scat, who's having it off with the blacksmith's wife. Yep. You know, she's obviously mutually punished. mutually there. The blacksmith wife is beating up Yoff in mm. the, the tavern for yep. no reason other than... It's all part of a big just, laugh, It's just a part of a laugh, asking yeah. him to dance. You know, Mia, to an extent, is a little flirty with Antonius, just mm. a little bit too much there, <laughs> those early scenes. Um, I didn't think it was too bad. It um. was a little... It was enough. <laughs> okay. I mean, when they're having strawberries in the field, I was thinking, hmm. She, she mentions her husband very quickly. Yeah. Oh, that, that, that's my husband. Just say, just say no. <laughs> oh, you're a really nice knight. I've got. The <laughs> um, oh god, the kid's the only one that's hands free. Kind of innocent, yeah. Yeah, and of course, but like even then, the kid's not even wearing pants. I'm seeing the kid's little butt the whole time. <laughs> and of course, yeah. Then you got Jans, who is who takes in. Um, the sort of the mute. It's very hard because some of them don't actually ever use their names. 
So Yeah, well there was a description on Wikipedia that's not actually coming up in the casting, which is driving me nuts. There is mute girl in the cast. Who has arguably the best Mute Servant Girl is in the description, okay. The best non speaking acting. Like that mm. non non dialogue and that final bit, which just man, see I was saying that it felt like some of these films in this countdown have been so intertwined with each other or, or they've actually had like these real residual cross-sections. You know, we talked a lot about Django and its influence on Tarantino, but even like taking something like the Green Knight's mysticism mm. and seeing the ending of this film where they're all sitting at a table and and something approaches from the outside, I just got absolute parallels with that feeling of when the Green Knight first arrives yeah. at Camelot. It's funny, it's, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I literally wrote, and you know me, I don't say this about a lot of films, there's very few films I would actually like to see remade, but I could totally see The Seventh Seal remade by a David Lowey. That's literally the first note I have in my notes. So it's fascinating you mentioned The Green Knight. I also put in Ariasta just because of the mm-hmm. intertextual paintings and like it sort of foreshadowing the ending at the beginning. And like yeah. those visual elements I could see Ariasta doing. But David Lowe, you're right, the tone of it, yeah. the mysticism of it. And and speaking of our countdown for the decades, you got Amadeus, which is also a film about characters who have questionable relationships with God. Yeah. So there's a lot of intertwinement going on here. Absolutely. Um, We're just that good, Zeke. We're, just... We're that good. We're that good. <laughs> you have to just tune into all the, dec- the countdown through the decades. But this has definitely been like the most joined i feel like mm. without even trying to be yeah, it's felt yeah. weirdly linked like i was saying even before the show how the the, the vich felt like that you could tie this into the vich so you know eggers would be in that conversation if this film was ever oh, made like yeah. he could capture that you know the fact that that's that film in particular from eggers is so about uh, a group of relate you know protestant people that have got that relationship with god and yeah and evil that lurks in the woods, and this is obvious. You know, the the witch in that is the embodiment of death, whereas you know, death is just literal in this. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you can even throw in, you know, we did a Blair Witch Project. Yeah. You know, in the woods, between all the screaming, to it, so between all the screaming, exactly, <laughs> and them just <laughs> telling each other to f off. Um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I I think it's really interesting because, you know when you get to the latter stage of the film when they're mm. moving through the forest and there's a moment when, you know, so blocks and yens go off and they're trying to prevent this girl being put to the, to fire, you know, right. to, put yep. to the stake by, um, for witchcraft. I had, I had a lapsed moment, Zeke, when they're, they've got her on the floor and they're sort of tying her up. And for some reason, I just saw like the visual and it went into my head. I'm like, oh my God, they're tying her to the train tracks. They're going to let a train run her over. And then I forgot what century this film takes place in. <laughs> it's a millennium. <laughs> too early for that but sure um, <laughs> was like, i want to train in this scene <laughs> but it's true and it's, it's i think that that moment really epitomizes that he has very little to live for mm. i think he's lost his sense of um you know because you we're following this antonius block who is a knight who yes. is seen and perceived in that societal microcosm as this a shining light of piety and and righteousness mm. and Yet he's devoid of happiness and he's devoid of hope. And although he is far more uh, reserved in his cynicism, unlike his squire, who sure. openly speaks of of basically how crap the world is, like when he, what's well, the squire who comes upon that first like skull, mm. asking for directions and turning the coat around? This is his big skull from memory. That's yes. that's him. Yeah, um, so almost like exposed to it more quickly. Yeah, you know, than our protagonist is, for example. And uh, it's interesting because there are only times in conversations that are very light-hearted at first, but take that sad and sort of dust like more. Um, I'm trying to think of the word now, and it's completely left mm-hmm. my head. More docile um, turning point when right. she, he's conversing with Mia about what's sort of getting mm-hmm. to him, and it's that existentialism and searching for answers and. We actually start to see a little bit more into the character he is, and she starts questioning about his wife and the fact that he barely remembers what she looks like. Is that yeah. sort of war? You know, this warrior that's returning from war and has taken many years to see her and mm. has lost on complete aspects of his life. He's looking at the child with that longing, and it's really interesting. Yeah, because it's interesting because the other one I was you you mentioned earlier, the girl 
um, the supposed witch, so to speak. My takeaway from that, and it, uh, you know, he it feels like to me he's using her as like the, the this is my chance at the redemptive arc I'm trying to find before mm-hmm. before I inevitably lose this chess match to to death, and he's trying to get her to sort of summon the devil, and her reaction to a devil that that we can't see that none of the characters can't see. It's actually it it sort of suggests this tangible personified figure that is very much the same as like Antonius with Death and then Death is his personified figure. So I thought that was a really interesting comparison. Um but they're two the two are almost aligned, but then there's also really nothing you can really do for her at that point. Mm. Is she mad, Zeke? Is she bloody mad? <laughs> but yeah, it's a ho- he's a hopeless character or he hopeless in the sense that he literally, yeah, is running out of hope as the mm. film preys on. But then I guess the the big redemptive moment for him is, I guess, that last move where Death finally defeats him at the chess game and he, he knocks over the <laughs> all the pieces, but that's his chance at almost like a distraction. Yeah, so it definitely feels away. like it's about making sure Mia and Yoff and their child get away. Yep. And they're the preservation of that paradise, you know. When we're introduced to Yoff, he's a buffoon and a bit of a mm. fool, but he has a lovable fool. Yeah, as well. he doesn't do yeah. anything inherently wrong. He loves his wife, he loves his child, and they have a dynamic that's very pure and is mm. that representation of what, despite all this darkness and the cynicism and the sin, mm. there's this one sort of family that needs to be preserved. And the ending very much makes that apparent as death leads the the group up the hill and um, oh, they're watching on. Amazing, yeah. Yeah, it's just a great callback. It's a sick finish. <laughs> and his monologue. And apparently in, in prop too. <laughs> but it's but it's it's his monologue. I mean, that's just Tommy Lee Jones's existential monologue, isn't yeah. it? At the end of No Country. Does the same sort of thing. Uh, which is another film we did as part of our yeah. uh, Down Through the Decades. Oh, look at us go, Zeke. Oh, we just need to... Uh... We just need to figure out how to get uh, close terrific. encounters in there somehow. <laughs> the mystery aspect, I, I, don't, I don't know, obsession. The, the, there's something in there. There's something in there. Like you said, de- death is deconstructed so early on. He's this witty, mm. and witty is almost like that double entendre of uh, black comedy. Like the, sure. the tragicness of some people's deaths that die silly. Yeah. Um, and this film does have elements of comedy in it. I mean, it's when Scat is, you know, the the getting off with the having it off with the the blacksmith's wife but she's sitting afar and he's like posing for her yeah yeah and twizzling his mustache i love and... the music during that sequence <laughs> it's so good and like that goes back to the duality i wanted to just get it in there because i don't want people to be like what was he talking about with duality like the film is so it's obviously it's it, there's like the pendulum swim between lust and love which is explored mm-hmm. a lot um life and and i guess death or even dread and for me, that comes in with the scene where, um, well, it, it when, when Scat gets crushed by a tree, the thing that immediately follows that is a squirrel jumps out, like a lively, healthy squirrel jumps mm-hmm. out and just kind of hangs out on the rest of the stem of that tree. So there's that pendulum swing of positive and negative energy, I suppose is the best way to put it. But to that song that we were just mentioning, it's, it's, it's love and thoughtful, but then it's also crude. It's they're talking about like virgins and their pussies and mm-hmm. <laughs> in this music. So I I just wanted to get that in. That's what I meant about duality. Yeah. Earlier in the film, and I think that applies. I would love to talk about the scene, and like this is where it gets a bit Orson Wellian in a sense. Where I think some of the the camera movement and editing, especially for 1957, is quite experimental. Oh, absolutely. Um, I love when they're all at that dinner table. They all turn as like the figure of death appeared like just the the slow pull out with the camera is just masterful in that moment um i love the long take as well it's um uh ravel when he he's got the plague and he's dying and screaming and they're, they're like you know there's nothing we can do for him i love that after he drops dead it just stays on that shot for like 10 15 seconds and it's it's confident i love that mm. for a film that yeah is is frankly this old so. Yeah, there's some amazing long takes. I mean, the, the, I'm just looking right now, just mm. as a reference. When the mute girl speaks for the first time um, yeah. and says, it is finished. Um, oh, so good. So good. <laughs> not to spoil a heart, like, not to, But that long take, how the fact that it starts 
as sort of a mid-wide mm. of them sitting at the table with her being the subject and then pulls away from her as a subject, yeah. surveys everyone. Everyone's and everyone gets frame their, and everyone their, gets their turn moment. Yeah, gets their moment to sort of say why they shouldn't be taken by death to an extent. Mm. Yeah, well, um, that, that's how I read it, was it's almost like a... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like their their final... Um, I mean, final it's an, words. Final words. It's an introduction, but it's it's almost like a their plead case in yeah. some ways, and and especially when the two of them talk about you know we you know we've had some you know arguments or disagreements, however they want to call it, you know the kind of flirtatious of it all. Um, but they say, but it's it's not worse than most is the words they use, which I think is part of their plead, and they obviously, I guess they all die as part of the vision that Yoff has mm. at the end of the film. Uh, but that's exactly how I read it. It was almost like that Absolutely. final case being pled. But it's funny because, obviously, yeah, everyone gets that final case and then it pushes on the mute girl and she's the only one who's conceded it's mm. over. And she, she sees yeah. a relief. Her, her eyes are not a fear. It's actually a relief. Like, yeah. her life has been so miserable that death is the only comfort. And to be fair, she has a tough time of it in the film yeah. we see. I mean... She's. We meet her, and she's about to be assaulted by a thieving man, and mm. then is taken under the the wing of another man who's, who's supposedly her savior. But yeah, it's like I mean, she's the quiet observer, mm. you know. Which if I'm gonna pull Zeke, are you ready for this pull? Brie Larson and Don John. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. No, but, match. but like you said, she's lived like this horrible life in these circumstances. There's a relief in, in the mm-hmm. end, but she's the only one there that really truly sees and accepts it on the spot. There's no bleeding yep. on her case. Um, yeah, which which I think says a lot. Um, yeah, beautiful stuff. Zeke, what was your highlight scene? I'm going to avoid seal. that that sure. particular final sequence, although it is pretty incredible. Mm. A lot of the cinematography in this is incredible. It's great use of mixing between those sort of wide focal lengths to really good close-up, shallow depth of fields. Yeah, Some yeah. of them are, are actually pretty incredible. I'll go with the scene where they're all sitting on the hill and there's that moment where Sindow's performance, you know, Antonius is giving that monologue about remembering this moment yeah. and this disjointed... Oh, yes. Um, moment where he's he's almost monologuing to the viewer. He's not really. It almost mm. feels like he's almost doing it out of time because it starts as if he's simply conversing to Mia, but the lack of you know either cutting to Mia's reaction as he's talking or yeah, and then he just gets up and walks away without any sort of saying. Oh, excuse me, I'm just going to the bathroom. Like, <laughs> um, like. It's, and goes to like a new, brand new furnished toilet from the 21st yeah, century. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, you know what that feels like? Because this is partially based on his own stage play, I believe. Mm. Um, that feels like the, you know, spotlight on our protagonist, monologue to the audience, and then, you know, exit right off stage. To join death the at the, the chess game. Yep. And it's so cool because it's that moment where they're often, the, and this happens quite a few times, the mm. only one who notices it eventually is Yoff, who goes, yep. he's playing a game with death. And that's what allows them to get away. But it is this moment where it's he's playing it in the foreground and they're sort of sitting loosely in the background. Mm. And But the monologue where he talks about savouring this moment, it's almost like he's, at that point, his arc really is kind of complete in terms of finding that fulfilment in life. Yeah. And then that's when the stakes introduced because obviously in that scene... I guess that's the midpoint. Twist It's a, it's a great way. midpoint, yeah. yeah. So He's kind of found this... I mean, yeah, he talks about you know, Yoff's music and Mia's strawberries and just like, yeah, you're right, embracing that moment. So it's kind of like he's succumbed this dread that he's felt before, but nevertheless, that doesn't shake death away. Death's it's nice lose. to see Scandinavian women have always been really attractive. <laughs> because... She's pretty without makeup, Zeke. <laughs> what is it? What, what is in the water there? They're just attractive. <laughs> They're just like... I was like looking at Mia and I'm like, yeah. Oof, boy, I can... I can there? Yeah, he's strawberries. <laughs> <laughs> Jake, what was your heart saying? Oh, my God. Mine is, and again, this goes into all the themes that we talked about earlier. It's very early on. It's when he enters the, um, when, like, towards the confessional booth, and he doesn't realize that he's mm. all the all the fears that he's, he's conjured up and sort of spilling out, that he's literally telling Death this. 
it's this idea, you know, the silence of God and the cruelty of life and his lack of faith and um, the vast majority of people that don't think about their mortality until they meet. And he gives up his chess move. And he gives up his chess move and then Death's like, (laughs) surprise, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) He's got to run the Queen's Gambit. Get Anna Taylor joining here. Oh, God. That was yeah. It was it was almost like comical the way they would like turn their heads uh, yeah. and they wouldn't recognize each other. I gotta say, at this point early in the film, there were two things I thought was gonna happen or was being implied. Yeah. First, I thought, and going into the film fairly blind, is that the chess game was gonna be like the Slumdog Millionaire, mm-hmm. you know, uh, game show, and that the rest of the film was gonna be like a flashback or a series of flashbacks that shows how death is We thought involved. the chess game would be more of a focal point, like the specific moves on the board. Sure. Yeah, I was really glad it wasn't because, you know, if, if it was all about the specificity of the chess moves, I wouldn't be able to follow it nearly as well. Um, but more importantly, I thought that was like your, your immediate res scene that's going to motivate, you know, I mean, the line he has, I want to find it, my body is ready, brackets for death, uh, but I am not. And then Def says that he long walked at the night's side, which I thought was like, okay, well, now we're going to go back in time and see all the times that Def's been involved in his life. And it ended up being a much more linear narrative than that. And I also thought the beach setting itself would serve more as like the the playground in Dogville in terms of like, this is kind of like the metaphorical playground for the actors. And mm-hmm. that obviously didn't end up being the case at all. No, in fact, they spend very, that iconic shot. Very little time, you're right. Is like two <laughs> seconds. And so, it's, yeah. it's you're 100% right, it is misdirect. It almost felt like they were going to play on a cliff face. And mm. then would, like you said, they would, the Slumdog Millionaire is a really good one. I generally thought that's what the structure was going to be. Yeah. Uh, but then it was that conversational booth scene where he literally says like I met Def and I'm playing a, ch- a chess game with him I was like oh this is a linear narrative of course this makes a bit more sense now And um, yeah. it's a road trip film <laughs> classic it's like Paul remember Paul <laughs> oh Paul <laughs> Paul the CGI alien yeah uh, uh, I was meant to mention Paul on the Close Encounters because we were talking about like the mm. little green men stereotype visual yeah. and like how Paul sort of mocks that and even has Steven Spielberg on the phone and uh, that's as close as I'm going to get to tying close does he go home does he go home at the end of Paul I think he does okay but he, bring, he brings he totally could do him, Paul 2 yeah like we're going to do Paul 2 <laughs> I'm sorry that was my Seth Rogen laugh the seventh seal is currently out in wide release and you can find it on youtube right now in a very good version pretty solid yeah a little bit of um could have done for higher bit rate but hey it was free yeah i'm not gonna complain at all i could buy the the criterion if i was that upset about i think it's spine number 11 it is a very very early criterion release the seventh Mm. seal speaking of criterion collection jake what's new to streaming platforms and uh, cinemas near us. Coming to Disney Plus, you got Ant Man and the Wasp: Quantumania. Yay! I'm so excited, Zeke. I heard it was Jonathan Major's best hit. But on boom, also coming to Disney Plus. Ah, oh. oh, we need to move on. Allegedly, we need to <laughs> we need to move on from this quick Zeke. Also coming to Disney Plus, a remake of the 1992 film White Men Can't Jump about basketball hustlers. I'm surprised they didn't change the name for that, but hey. No, the whole point is that, yeah, it's exactly they... what the title is. Woody Harrelson was in the original. Oh. He was the white man. Oh, well, there They couldn't go. jump. There you go. The titular character <laughs> of that film. <laughs> uh, coming to Prime this week, we've got The Wolf of Wall Street, Edge of Tomorrow, uh, The Woman King which also comes to binge. So there you go. Also coming to binge, you've got all five seasons of Plebs, which is Kirsty's favorite TV yeah. series. So there you go. Everyone jump on the bandwagon. I'll be watching. I think I've seen like half of it. Okay. I've seen like all of season one and then little chunks of seasons two and four. And then I saw the movie. They did the movie um, that kind of like ties everything up after. So I can go and clean up the rest of like season two, three, five, that, that whole spiel. Uh, also coming to Paramount Plus this week. I mean, I didn't realize this. Apparently, Paramount Plus is going to get the axe. Well, that does not surprise me. Yeah. Who but... has Paramount Plus? <laughs> you do it every week, and I'm like, I actually, like, legit, yeah. that is not even me exaggerating. I actually don't know anyone that has Paramount Plus. I think I had it. I had the week 
Yeah, I've had free trial yeah. um, for Mar- Jerry and Marge go large. That was it. But like, I legit, I know people that have Apple TV. Yep. I know not a lot of people. I know not a lot of people that have Prime. Okay, because, I thought Prime would be a pretty popular one. Now, nah, the, the the big two for me is still, yeah, it's still Stan, it's still um, Netflix. And I think more people are moving to Stan. Yeah, Stan's great, especially with Australian binge, stuff. Binge has gotten really big. Binge is, I mean, just like, I mean, look at... Binge has Just look at the last few weeks. I really think Binge is Last of one, Us, Succession. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? Binge has taken out this year's... This year and probably last year's best streaming service, I reckon. Mm. And I think Stan is second, and I think Netflix hasn't been first for at least two, three years now. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's obviously not on the chopping block, but Netflix, yeah, it's it's considerably dropped the ball. Yeah. in so many ways. Name the last like Netflix thing that wasn't Stranger Things that you. I was. Until <laughs> you said that wasn't Stranger Things, I was going to say Stranger Things. Yeah. <laughs> it's. I think twenty nineteen, twenty twenty. Those were like that's the apex of Netflix. After that. Sure. It's actually been other services that have come through. Probably Stan and now Binge. Yeah. Um, Apple TV's, God, it's clinging on to the two or three things it, it has every it year. It is, but like in the last week, I've talked about both the Michael J. Fox film and Tetris. Yeah. Like I've been watching these Apple TV Plus If Coda won Best Picture. Fair bump. By the way, she, the director for Coda, she's in uh, Barry. Oh. And Guillermo del Toro. They both have cameos in season four. I was shocked by that. Paramount Plus's biggest hook hmm. is that it's got all the seasons of South Park. Like, that's actually uh, one of its big marketing points. But they'll just go back to Netflix. Stuff as well. Yeah, they'll just go back to Netflix. Yeah. That's yeah. where they were originally. Goodbye, Paramount Plus. <laughs> go that's... SBS On Demand. Yeah, I know. We could give that more of a shout out. Um, all right, coming to cinemas, we've got Fast X, Zeke. You excited for Fast oh, X? Oh, it's Fast and Furious. Yes. I had to that take a this hot second to figure out that. Jason Momoa is the bad guy in this one. I don't even... You you could tell me that Brian Cox is the bad guy in the next Fast Fury. I would believe you. Like, I don't... Yeah, I yeah, just don't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's yeah. just, like, merge it. Oh, God. Yeah, look, it's, apparently this is, like, the... This is meant to be the last one. Now it's, like, the third last one. They just keep adding They're more. They're going to be 12. What the... Oh, my God. Yeah. I can't, I can't be There's stuck. a new Transformers movie coming out soon. There is. I, the trailer is... <laughs> Who's wanting these films? Else. Like, I actually don't know who wants a Transformers film. Even teenagers. I don't know a single teenager's like... Yeah, like when the first Transformers came out, oh, people were huge. legit excited for it. Yeah. Lincoln Live Park in the credits, man. Yeah, well, the music was probably half and sell, wasn't it? Tyler <laughs> um, Buff, he was big at the time. Yeah, he was. <laughs> he was, yeah. Megan Fox, he was in it, wasn't he? It kind of had all those ingredients to be like that big the 2007 perfect, yeah. blockbuster. But like, I don't know teenage like teenagers like they're excited. They were excited for Guardians three, sure. And I'm hearing it's pretty good. Yeah, generally, um, I'll go. It's fine. I like the Guardians films. So yeah, I, hmm. I'm tempted. I'll just go for the soundtrack. I'm te- well, you know, because like, there's way more homework to Guardians three than just like the first two Guardian films. Because you got like your end game and stuff where it's like, I guess like they got to establish Gamora is like not the same Gamora because of end game. But then they're also in the new four film. They got a Christmas special. So I it's don't like, think the Christ- all- does the Christmas special count? Probably not. I It reveals something about like Mantis and Star Lord like related. I think that's it. Spoiler. I, I, ooh, spoilers. Okay. Ooh. Sorry, everyone. And then. <laughs> Do you have to watch the new Thor? Oh, yeah, because that's how Thor gets away from well, them. Well, I know, I know they're in Thor. I have no idea how relevant they are in Thor. Oh, but, right. see, I feel like I kind of just have to do that. Now, now that I probably won't. I'll probably just watch it and just be like, well, whatever. I'm sure you'll still very much enjoy it and you're not going to be confused by much. No. I am sure of it. But, like, I might as well go on Disney Plus one day, on a day where I'm feeling really crap, <laughs> and just watch Thor... And Black Panther and Ant Man and all the whatever that's come out. Yep. In the last two years, I'm. It's been two years, because I think Doctor Strange was the last one I watched. Wow. It's been that long since I've watched any of these, so maybe. But I will say, yeah, Guardians Three is getting very good, good rep. So there is that. Uh, also coming to cinemas this week, you got Marlowe, a neo noir crime thriller starring Liam Neeson. Uh, Limbo, which sees a jaded detective put in charge of a 20-year-old cold case murder in the outback, 
and has a Q&A screening at Luna tomorrow, the 16th, so that Tuesday. That sounds cool. Yeah, that sounds really cool. It's Ivan Sen of Mystery Road fame, he's the director, and Simon I'm Baker's in it. I'm on board. So oh, bo- I'm really on board. They're both going to be there tomorrow at Luna, so... Simon Baker's going to be at Luna tomorrow? Apparently. What time? Uh, Mate, I'll six-ish. go just to meet Simon Baker. He's elite. <laughs> there you go. That's uh, they're, they're, they're I actually really tomorrow. like Mystery Road. I haven't seen the TV show, but the film... Right. Because it was a film and now it's got a TV show. Gotcha. That kind of is a sequel. So it's a sequel TV show. So the movie right, goes right, right. and then it's... It's like Jimmy Neutron. Is that how Jimmy Neutron? I think it's... Yeah, I think it's the movie and then they made the show up. Oh, okay. I think... <laughs> Random pull yet but again. But Mystery Road, the film, is really good. So... Yeah, excellent. Um, that sounds cool. Mate, there Maybe you go. That's I saw... Um, what's his name? The one we always talk about. Uh, Tim Winton, he's got a documentary that just came out. Oh, I saw it on ABC cool. today. I don't know if it's in cinemas yet, but it's coming. Right. I could cool. have swore I saw his name attached to this as well. Limbo, maybe. Yeah. He's I'm got a doco it. where he goes up to Exmouth and he's like... Oh, you know, uh, okay. You know, the godfather of WA film. Right. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Who filmed part of his film on this very street that we're recording the podcast on. There you go. A little, little tie-in. Well, and finally, John Farham, Finding the Voice yeah. documentary on the Australian music icon he is awesome there you go so that comes out i'm guessing thursday it's so sad now with john farnham because he kind of he had um he got really sick and then i don't think he'll ever perform ever again oh that's a shame yeah maybe that's part of what this documentary is i mean literally this is finding the voice yeah so it's probably a cheeky ton and ton and cheek something going on there yeah well yeah because he sung you the voice ah <sighs> of course yeah I'm not going to sing it on the phone. Making sense now. Yeah. Actually, the most, I think it's the most commercially successful album in Australian history, Whispering really? Jack. Yeah. Oh, well, there you go. This sounds like a great documentary then yep. to learn all about because you know a hell of a lot more about him than I do, it seems. I like his music. So. There you go. Easy peasy. Well, that's everything coming to streaming and cinemas in the next week. Well, we're moving into our second last installment in the countdown through the decades oh, that's for so our fourth sad. year. It is sad. It's so sad. We're going into one of the golden decades, well, hallmarked golden decades of cinema. Mm. Um, 1940s, Jake. You say two very strong f- candidates went up against each other. Yeah. One got out on top because I'm pretty sure by the time of year. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so, so the other film that was involved, It's a Wonderful Life, it lost the poll 15 to 6. I mean, definitely part of that is you're right. It is not Christmas. <laughs> so I don't think people are in the mood for this film quite so much. But the other one that we are doing next week, Zeke, I'm excited because we talked about Sunset Boulevard being the only film that's lost two polls in our Countdown for the Decades history. This one is, uh, it lost one, but it made the comeback this time. So next week in the show, Zeke, we're finally watching Casablanca. <laughs> Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. But they're all trapped, for there is no escape. Against this fascinating background is woven the story of an imperishable love and the enthralling saga of six desperate people, each in Casablanca, to keep an appointment with destiny. I was willing to shoot Captain Rano, and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. It's December 1941 in Casablanca, Morocco. A cynical American bumps into his former lover. I think this takes place at Christmas too, technically. (laughs) (laughs) But, Zeke, it's tight because it's obviously got the backdrop of the war. Mm. A war that we've mentioned a few times in today's episode. Yes. So, uh... Yeah, there's the tie there, Zeke. You know, we just we got to do it somehow. Yeah, that's a really good observation. They both take place in December. I think that I think I seem to recall, <laughs> though I've never seen this film. I think I've seen one scene that takes place on Christmas Day or something in a bar or yeah, something. It's been a while. I think I I might have watched this 
during like that the super covid like march 2020 time period i've got the dvd it's there somewhere yeah, I've got a DVD um yeah it's a great film it's and like with the context of knowing they shot and made it in 1942 so the war was literally happening while they're making this film so that context is wild but um yeah i'm excited to talk about it on the show until then thank you for joining us for the cinema science show podcast i was zeke i was jake we'll catch you next week with the 1942 film casablanca